Welcome to the Creation Podcast. I'm Christy Hardy. On today's show, ICR physicist Dr. Jake Hebert will give an update on his latest climate research. What does Earth's climate have to do with our mission to connect science with biblical truth? Stay tuned and find out. We'll also give details on ICR's newest children's book and a big creation conference we're holding in Dallas, Texas. We'll end with a Q&A with ICR science writer Brian Thomas. Brian will bring clarity to the confusion over how we should interpret Genesis. Genesis lays the foundation for every other book in the Bible. Shouldn't we know what it's saying? But first, let's talk climate research. Welcome, Dr. Jake. Good afternoon. Jake, what does climate research have to do with ICR's mission? Well, there was a climate change in the past, and explaining that climate change is a big part of the origins debate. We think that the climate in the pre-flood world may have been different than it is now. There's some disagreement about that among creationists. But we had an ice age after the flood, and we think the Genesis flood enables us to explain the ice age much better than secular theories. So... That's a big part of it. What are you working on right now? Well, I just finished a major research project where I took aim at the primary secular ice age theory, what they call the Milankovitch or astronomical theory. And it's basically the idea that ice ages are paced by these changes in the way the sunlight falls on the Earth, supposedly over tens of thousands of years. And I found a major problem with the main argument for that theory, a very well-known paper entitled The Pacemaker of the Ice Ages that was published back in 1976. And not just the scientists, but biblical skeptics in general will try to argue that these ice sheets prove an old earth. They will claim that they have counted more than 100,000 annual layers in a deep ice core from central Greenland. And they've assigned ages of, say, 400 to 800,000 years to some deep ice cores from Antarctica. And at first glance, that looks very intimidating. So I've spent a lot of time addressing the way they assign those ages. And I think we've made a very strong argument that they are overcounting the true number of annual layers in the Greenland cores. The Antarctic cores are a lot easier to address because they actually use models, theoretical models, to date those ice cores because you don't really see annual layers in the Antarctic ice cores. There's not a lot of snowfall on that part of Antarctica. And so you really don't get well-defined layers that are at least consistent. And so they use these theoretical age models to assign ages to those deep ice cores. Well, those models assume millions of years. So it's not really surprising that they get these vast ages out of those models. So even though some people may be intimidated by the vast ages that they've assigned to those cores from Antarctica, those ages really don't prove anything because they're coming directly from these models, which implicitly is millions of years. And so when secular scientists look at ice sheets and ice cores, they're seeing deep time. Right. Uh, as a creation scientist, what are you seeing when you look at this? When you're looking at, say, the Greenland ice cores, you do see bands. You see bands in the upper half, maybe two-thirds of the core. But it is a mistake to assume that each visible band is an annual layer. In fact, I don't think even secular scientists normally make that assumption. The problem is, is that you have multiple layering patterns that can appear per year, and the number of those bands can vary from year to year. So they have to make an educated guess about how many 
bands should be grouped together and counted as one year. That's an educated guess, but it's still a guess. So there's a huge amount of uncertainty in dating those ice cores. And I don't think Christians or creationists have anything to be intimidated by when it comes to explaining the ice. The Genesis flood gives a much better explanation for an ice age, which is where those ice sheets started forming in the first place. In fact, can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Some people may be wondering, what would the Ice Age have to do with the global flood? Can you talk about that connection? Basically, in order to get an Ice Age, you need two things. You need to keep winter snow and ice from melting for many consecutive years. The idea is that you will have a layer of snow and ice be deposited one year, and then if you can keep most of that from melting the following summer, the next winter you get some more ice and snow, And if you can keep most of that from melting during the following summer, the next winter you get still more. So the idea is that would enable ice sheets to build up. Well, in order for that to happen, you need two things. You need cool summers to keep the snow and ice from melting. That's pretty obvious. But you also need heavy snowfall because even if you have cooler summers, if the snowfall is light, it's probably still going to melt. So you need those two things. So the question is, how do you get those two things? Well, the Genesis flood provides a very straightforward explanation. During the flood, we think there was a lot of seafloor spreading where you had a lot of new seafloor being formed. It was you know hot and then it cooled off. That's going to warm up the oceans a lot. You're also going to have a lot of volcanic activity occurring during the flood. And so that's going to warm the oceans. And as a result of that, you're going to get more evaporation. That's going to put a lot more moisture into the atmosphere. And so you're going to get more precipitation, including more snowfall at high latitudes and on mountaintops. And so that gives you the snow, that gives you the heavier snowfall, but you've also got to keep it from melting. And we think that the volcanic eruptions that occurred at the end of the flood and afterwards, that put a lot of aerosols up into the stratosphere. They reflected sunlight. And we know from observations that when you have big volcanic eruptions, they give you the greatest cooling effect during the summer and autumn months. And so we think that gave you the cooler summers that kept the snow and ice from melting. And this volcanic activity kept going sporadically with gradually decreasing intensity for many years after the flood. And so that's what enabled the ice sheets to form and to build up. And of course, gradually that volcanic activity got less and less, and then the oceans cooled off, and ultimately then the Ice Age came to an end. But in a nutshell, that's what we think caused the Ice Age. Let's talk about a different aspect of climate research. How should we respond to these climate change claims? Well, I I don't think it's anything to panic over. You know, I've tried to keep an open mind about global warming. I don't want to have a knee-jerk reaction. I, you know, I want to look at the data honestly. It's because of some of the things I've seen, the way some of these scientists behave, that honestly, I don't really trust the people who are pushing this alarmism. And my own experience with the pacemaker paper is part of that. You have basically the entire climate community, secular climate community, acting as if this paper is still valid. And there's serious questions about that that I've exposed in my research. And this isn't just any old paper. This paper in 2016, Nature and Science ran articles commemorating this paper's 40th anniversary, which incidentally was a few months after I had published my (laughs) critique, okay? But they're acting as if the paper is still valid, and there's a serious question about that. And so when I see that kind of thing going on, I'm very skeptical. And I think biblically, we shouldn't really be worried about it. And here's the thing that's tricky about this. These issues are often very complicated, even for professional scientists. You know, they're using these climate models, and unless you've got their code and you know what they've been doing, 
can you really trust the output coming from these climate models? And so the way I look at it is, look, I went back to this foundational paper, this pacemaker of the Ice Ages paper, and what I did was not that hard. I mean, there are thousands of other scientists, engineers, and mathematicians who could have done what I did. But when I did it, I saw that it didn't line up. So if there is something fairly simple like this, this being overlooked and is questionable, then how can I trust these other conclusions that are coming from complicated climate models? And so honestly, because of these kind of issues, I am very hesitant to take these claims that they're making about climate change, alarmism, and catastrophic global warming. I am very, very hesitant to take those claims at face value, and I think other people ought to be as well. Well, thanks so much for the update, Jake. You've helped us see many ways that climate research impacts our understanding of biblical history, and it also helps us have a biblical perspective as we process the climate change claims of secular scientists today. Okay, Creation Podcast listeners, I want to take a minute to tell you about a new children's book from ICR. In God Made Gorillas, God Made You, children will learn fun facts about some of God's most fascinating creatures. This 32-page book is filled with vivid watercolor paintings of animals from air, land, and sea. From the mightiest lion roaming the plains to a swirling octopus hiding in the deep. And of course, a gorilla too. But nothing compares with the best creation of all, people who are made in the image of our very big God. Get a copy for the kids in your life at icr.org store. Have you wondered how the creation account in Genesis fits with the evolutionary theories of popular science? You're not alone. Many Christians wrestle with the seeming disparity between faith and science. The Unlocking the Mysteries of Genesis Conference, held at First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, will show how scientific evidence lines up with the Bible. On August 26th at First Baptist Dallas, you'll find something for everyone in the family, including animatronic creatures and fossil displays for the kids. Attend presentations by ICR scientists on dinosaurs, the global flood, the ice age, and more. And our special guest speaker, NASA astronaut Colonel Jeffrey Williams, will talk about his view from space. Visit icr.org slash events for more information. Now, do you wonder how we should interpret the opening chapters of Genesis? Few passages in scripture are so hotly debated. Our next guest, ICR science writer Brian Thomas, will bring clarity to the issue. Welcome, Brian. Hi. Well, let's jump right in. Why do you think there's so much confusion on how to understand Genesis, particularly the first 11 chapters? Well, it has to come from our culture's insistence that it's wrong. So our culture says that scientists are right and scientists believe in evolution, and evolution has millions of years of creatures morphing from one kind of creature to a different kind of creature, and that's how we got here. We came from ape-like ancestors, and they came from, if you go back far enough, clams and the like. And so when people believe that that's scientific, they believe that that stuff is true, then they look at the Bible, they look at Genesis and go, what creation? That doesn't make sense of science. And when they do that, they've got this false view that science equals evolution. And what we do at the Institute is we're brave enough, I guess, to say, does it really? Does the science really support this story that they call evolution? And what we find in case after case, time after time, and discipline after discipline is that it does not. And so we find instead evidence in the actual real world 
that supports the creation perspective. Well, you know, I don't hear as many Christians wondering whether or not Jesus really performed miracles or looking for an alternative interpretation of his resurrection. Um, Do you think that the messages we're getting from secular science is part of the reason why Christians question Genesis more than many other passages? If you are going to say creation didn't happen, that's too miraculous for me. If you're going to say the flood didn't happen, that's too miraculous for me. If you're going to say the Red Sea never parted, because it sounds too much like a miracle. And this comes from the philosophy that says miracles are not scientific. So if we're going to say those things about those historical events that actually happened, and we know because they were attested by multiple eyewitnesses who wrote it down for us to read and look at and examine, then why not question the virgin birth, virgin conception, resurrection of Christ, turning water into wine? And so it's logically consistent to just discount all the miracles By the way, if that's true, if there were no such thing as miracles, we wouldn't be here because the laws of nature don't make people. There has to be a miracle. You have to have miracle in order to have the world we live in. So if miracles are on the table, that means God is back on the table and he should be back in our minds. And therefore we should go, okay, why am I questioning creation? Why am I questioning the flood? Because we have eyewitnesses saying that these events happened. And if I'm going to believe the miracles in the New Testament, why not also the miracles in the Old Testament? So we should be consistent in our thinking as Christians. But some of us Christians aren't as consistent. And some of us just haven't thought through the issues. Well, some argue that Genesis should be interpreted as poetry. Is that a valid claim? Well, I think the people who say that Genesis is more poetic than it is historical, I think those people bring to the text their evolutionary ideas. They bring to the Genesis record philosophies that modern men have invented. For example, evolution, Big Bang, millions of years. These are philosophies. They don't come from science. They don't come from observations. They don't come from rocks. People made it up. Okay, and then they bring this to the text and they go, okay, well, this alternative history of millions of years of evolution, whether you're talking about stellar evolution, chemical evolution, organic evolution, you know, it's all nature is doing everything on its own without any miracles. That philosophy masquerades as science. It's not really science, but people bring that to the text and they go, okay, if that's all true, this evolution business in millions of years, then this text cannot also be true because they are mutually exclusive because the one says no miracles and Genesis says miracles. The one says morphing between kinds and Genesis says they're each to reproduce after its own kind for two examples. So they're mutually exclusive. So what they do is they try to get around it by saying, oh, well, this Genesis text isn't really conveying history. It's like a poem and we're supposed to get something other than what it says on its surface from it. And then at that point, you're left to your own devices to determine what you think you want to get out of the text. Because once you say it doesn't have to mean what it says it means, then you could make up whatever meaning you want. So I think it's useless. I mean, there's poetic elements to it, but that just maybe helps with memorization of the text. But that doesn't diminish its historicity. But when we consider that Jesus himself quoted from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 in Mark 10, 6, Paul quoted from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, And the New Testament authors and other Old Testament prophets, they referenced Genesis as history. And so if you say it's not history, and instead it's poetry, then guess what else you have to do? You have to say that Jesus was wrong, Paul was wrong, the New Testament is wrong, the Old Testament is wrong. Why not just chuck out your Bible? And that's what a lot of people do. They chuck out the whole Bible because of this false idea that Genesis is now just a poem. And so ICR holds to a straightforward 
literal understanding of Genesis, that seems obvious, but can you define that for us? What does that mean? Well, ICR scientists have, for half a century now, just about, looked at the text and realized if the text doesn't mean what it says on its surface, then it really can't mean anything objective. In other words, if day does not mean day, then what does it mean? It could mean book or tree or whatever you want. And so in order for the text to have any meaning, it has to have the meaning that it shows on its surface. So when you look at it, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It means God did this creation work, not the Big Bang. And how did he do it? And he said, let there be light. And he said this and he said that. So God is creating using the power of his spoken word. And then, of course, the New Testament, when it deals with creation assumes that that's, in fact, what happened. For example, in 2 Peter 3, verses 5 and 6, Peter says these scoffers are going to come in the last times and they're going to be willfully ignorant, but that by the word of God, the heavens were of old. So Peter is saying that the word of God is how we got the heavens and the earth, he says. That's how it happened, by the spoken word of God. Peter believed it. That's what Genesis says. So if we come in and say, oh, Genesis doesn't really mean that. God didn't really create things. Things just happened naturally. All we're doing is we're adopting the world's philosophy and we're trying to squeeze the text of the Bible into that philosophy and every single time results in messing with and diminishing the word of God. So what do we mean by we take it straightforwardly? It means this. In just the same way that I understand what you're telling me right now and the questions you're asking me, the same way you understand the meanings of the words that I'm using as I talk to you, that's how we take the Bible, and that's how it stands. So it sounds like what you're saying is is when people start to question Genesis, there are many other passages that refer back to the creation. And so when you're undermining Genesis, you're actually undermining many other parts of the Bible. That's right, and it goes further than that. I mean, for example, let's take references to the name of Adam. So now we have this big push within evangelical circles to get rid of Adam. And they're saying, oh, guys, come on, evolution's true. You need to get up with the times and get rid of your silly old beliefs in a mythical Adam. Get that out of your Bibles and out of your minds. The Bible didn't really mean it when it said Adam. Okay, well, that's a problem because you have six Old Testament books that reference the name Adam explicitly. And then you have five New Testament books that reference the name Adam explicitly. So, well, if Adam's not real, we got to get rid of those six books in the Old Testament and those five books in the New Testament. But if those books are bad, then all the other books in the Bible that reference those six and those five, those are also to be rejected. And so it doesn't take long for the entire Bible to unravel just on the basis alone of these authors referencing, cross-referencing one another and leaning on one another as the prophets and apostles spoke these words of truth with the same message about the first Adam and Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians 15. The first Adam came, and that's why we brought sin and death into the world. And the last Adam is a life-giving spirit. And that, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're undermining the Bible when we get rid of Adam, for example. And we're also undermining the very gospel. Because how do we learn about the gospel? What source do we use to learn about the good news that we can be forgiven? that we can have our sins erased, the penalty of our sins taken, placed upon the Lord Jesus instead of us having to pay that penalty. That gospel message comes from the Bible. And so if we get rid of Adam, if we get rid of all the references that refer back to Genesis as actual history, then we actually undermine the gospel itself. It's dangerous stuff. The Bible stands altogether. 
it stands on its own and it stands rather well. And what we do at the Institute is we show that science, in addition to the Bible's own testimony for itself, science supports that scripture also, including the passages in Genesis. Thank you, Brian. I hope this brings clarity to the issue for many of our podcast listeners. If you have any questions you'd like ICR to answer on future episodes, send us a message on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash ICR science. Remember to subscribe to the Creation Podcast on iTunes. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and review the show so that more listeners can find us. Join ICR next time for another episode of the Creation Podcast.